Well, babe, we did it. We wrote a book. Yeah, man, it's it's actually surreal to even think about uh, that we wrote a book, had a baby, got married, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is now available yeah. for pre-order, and we're so excited to share it with you. Oh, so looking forward to getting this book into your hands, to be in dialogue and conversation with all of you as we continue to liberate love from old imprints and codependent dynamics that keep us small, stuck, and stagnant. Yeah, you know, no matter your relationship status, this book walks you through what shaped you, why do you do what you do in relationship. It dives deep into your relationship blueprint, attachment styles, and most importantly, which is different than every other book that's ever covered codependency in the past, we explore the role of the nervous system in that. And the book is called Liberated Love. Yeah. Release your codependent patterns and create the love you desire. Go to createthelove.com slash liberated love to order your copy now. That's createthelove.com slash liberated love and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support. Much love. Thank you. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mark Groves podcast. I hope this finds you so well wherever you're at in the world and in whatever you're going through right now. I, I've been curious due to selfish reasons for my own curiosity about our relationship to technology, our devices, how that impacts our lives. And, you know, not just on a biological level of like, what does it do to us? Like what is happening in our brains that makes us want to, or like have a real hard time even creating space from these devices. They become so integrated into our experience. And, you know, this this is so imperative from a relational perspective because, of course, they can be incredible devices in order to create connections, right? Listen to podcasts like this one, make friends, date, all the things, communicate with our partners, our families, you know, and I, I think there's really a lot of magic in that, you know, much like any technology. I And what always comes with technology is this fear that technology is going to end the world, you know, I'm sure when the fax machine came out people were like oh my god the fax machine what are we gonna do it's gonna change everything and you know i i do think though there's a lot more validity to the concerns because uh, at least around cell phones and smartphones and social media and um, today's podcast episode is a conversation with a woman who has built an expertise in that area of like, how do you actually break up with your phone? That's a book that she wrote. And I'm curious about that aspect. Like, what steps do you take to actually regain the choice over your relationship to your phone? Like, how do you become the decider of the agreements of that relationship? And that aspect of how do we create distance from our devices and use them as tools instead of being used by them? And what comes from that, though, is even more exciting. And I'm so pumped because Catherine Price, who's the guest today, who's just an incredible woman, she discusses and expresses like, what do you do with the space that's created? How do you create that space? And how do you take ownership over that relationship? And then, oh my gosh, when that space is created, what do you do with it? And what do you explore there? And what do you 
insert in that? And how do we really cultivate joy? And what is the, what is joy? And what's the magic around all of this stuff? And I'm so excited. This podcast episode was very enlightening, very enriching. I felt fuller and I felt like words were given to feelings I had and have. And I felt a real sense of hope about technology and our relationship to technology and also our capacity as humans to dictate the terms of relationships, but also our ability to create love, our ability to create joy, our ability to create memories, just this capacity that we have when we're just interacting with the analog world to really fill ourselves up. And and so we are enriched on a cellular level, like a biologically cellular level, not a cellular digital level. So this episode is so rich. I can't wait for you to hear it. And, you know, before we get started, one way that you can support the podcast is subscribe to it so you don't miss any episodes. We got some zingers coming. And wherever you listen to it, please give it a five-star review and a written review. That is so helpful. And without further ado, here's Catherine Price. Welcome, Catherine Price. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I I really love the serendipitous nature to which I found your work. Um, I was hanging out in Tofino on the west coast of Canada, and I was at the Little Mermaid bookstore. And shout out to that little bookstore. I love mom and pop bookstores. And your book was actually sitting right beside the till. And at the time, I was going through... But I'd, I'd say I'm still in sort of the untangling of it. But I was at the height of like an anxious uh, technology-related uh, breakdown. You know, I think as Brene Brown calls it, breakthrough. So we're, we're in the breaking through. But I was certainly at sort of the, the edges of my own capacity. And I didn't really know why till I had a breakdown around technology. And behind the anxiety was generally my phone and Instagram actually, maybe more specifically. And so your phone, your book just sat there, like how to break up with your phone. And I looked at me and I was like, oh shit. It's kind of like when you're in a relational thing and you see a quote and you're like, oh damn, I got to have a conversation or, you know, it felt very similar. So thank you for writing it. And thank you for um, bringing such clarity to a subject that uh, I think we all unconsciously, if not consciously, but I'd say a thousand percent unconsciously are actually um, curious about our relationship with technology and whether it is dysfunctional or unhealthy or exploitive, which I think it is all those things or can be. Um, so yeah, I, I'm curious about the story and, and all the things of what caused you to write it, etc. Well, first of all, I'm so happy to hear that you found the book when you needed it and that it helped you with your own relationship with technology. That's just the type of story that as a writer just thrills me because it can be so isolating to just be sitting alone writing words. So to find out that other people actually read those words <laughs> and that it helps is just wonderful. But the story of how to break up with your phone is that, um, you know, I have a background in mindfulness and I've written about happiness and the science of happiness for a long time, but I actually had been writing a lot more about um, the science of nutrition and health because I've got type one diabetes, I was diagnosed when I was 22. And, um, and it just was more in that, that lane. But then I had a baby in 2015. And 
had a couple moments that really affected me with her. Most profound was one where I was feeding her in the middle of the night and I had this kind of out of body experience where I saw the scene as it would have appeared to an outsider, which probably, well, it might've been my background in mindfulness, but it also might've been sleep deprivation. And I saw this scene where there was this little baby looking up at her mother's face. And then that mother was looking down at her phone and it devastated me. I just thought this is not how I want to live my life. And it's certainly not the impression I want my daughter to have of a human relationship, let alone with her mother. So in that moment, I decided I needed to change. And I have a history of trying to turn my personal issues into professional projects. (laughs) I I have a similar one. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I realized that I was not the only person struggling at that point with my relationship with my phone, but at that point, in some, it was sometime in 2016, not many people were really talking about it. And more importantly, I couldn't find any solution. You know, mm-hmm. what there was out there was just kind of doomsday kind of things that made me depressed and anxious, but I didn't have a plan for how to take back control. So I decided I would write one. So that resulted in How to Break Up With Your Phone, uh, which is a look at the science of what our screen time is doing with us, coupled with a 30-day plan to take back control. And then as we can talk about more later, that in turn led me to write my new book, which is called The Power of Fun, How to Feel Alive Again. Yeah, they they sound very correlated because, of course, uh, what gets in the way of fun, which I can't wait to hear more about, uh, you know, just that spaciousness, that ability to have a moment to let yourself enjoy fun. Because, you know, I remember reading the research on how when a phone is sitting down, face down at a restaurant, people are less vulnerable with one another, even if it's in their pocket. And when I started to think about that, I'm like, well, that makes sense. Cause I'm constantly thinking, do I have a notification? Is there something better going on than this thing that I need, you know, from a cellular perspective, but I mean like literally cellular, not digitally cellular. It seems like, um, it seems like our bodies are really craving that. And yet we're finding this sort of, like superficial level of connection through technology. And, and I'm curious, you know, when you did the research on this, did you start to see that sort of showing up in data? Yeah, I think that we, one of the main downsides of technology, one of the saddest things about our phones from my perspective is that they are communications devices and they Mm -hmm. actually do have the ability to truly connect us with people we care about and whom we love. We need to just use them as phones, but we don't use them as phones. They're actually more like little (laughs) computers that we carry in our pockets, or I would argue more accurate of a description would be that they are slot machines that we keep in our pockets, which is a comparison that Tristan Harris, who's this former product philosopher at Google, who now is an activist, uh, came up with because they're deliberately designed to activate our dopamine systems in the exact same ways as slot machines specifically so that we'll keep coming back for more. And one of the tragic consequences of that is that it makes it very difficult for us ever to be fully present in terms of what we're doing or whom we're with, because part of our attention has been trained to always be on our phone. And so then you have a double whammy where the, when you're with someone else and your phone is nearby, part of your attention is trained on your phone, even if it's subconscious because of this conditioning. We've essentially become like Pavlov's dogs, you know, the dogs who were trained to drool Mm. when they heard a bell just because Pavlov fed them food and rang a bell at the same time and eventually didn't have to give them food. They would drool just for the bell. And the same thing is happening to us. On the flip side, the person that we're with knows 
that part of your attention is on your phone. Part of their attention is probably on their phone too. But if you see that someone's phone is out or you see them just look away for a, a split second to see what that notification was, that intimacy and that trust is broken and is very difficult to get back. And so, yes, there's a lot of data showing that when you have a cell phone present, it reduces the perceived intimacy of a conversation and the sense of connection. Another study I came across in my research for the power of fun was about um, interactions between strangers with and without their smartphones. So researchers had people come into a waiting room um, and ask them either to have their phones or not have their phones. And then they recorded how often the strangers smiled at one another and had some kind of interaction with one another, which is very important because a smile is what's known as a play signal in the scientific literature, which is an invitation to connect and be playful with someone. It's the same thing as when a dog bows down on its four legs and the waves it's mm. in the air. And it's a really important tool to have what are called fleeting interactions with other people, small interactions that might not seem like a big deal because you don't know the person necessarily, but actually have an enormous impact on our well-being. Anyway, suffice it to say that when people wow. had their smartphones with them, they smiled at each other much less frequently and therefore didn't send out these play signals and didn't have these momentary fleeting interactions that might actually have boosted their happiness in that moment. So I think that we're only beginning wow. to wrap our minds around the profound negative effects that the interactions we have with our devices are having on our relationships with other people. And again, I just find that so sad because so many of the apps that right. we spend the most time on are, are billed as tools for connection, when in reality, they're driving us apart. I have so many thoughts on all of that. Like, first off that, you know, I think of the social dilemma where in it, they say, if you don't know what the product is, you are the product. And I had this realization in my anxiety that I have not only been extracted from through Instagram, you know, building a business within a platform, like I have so much gratitude for what it's cultivated because we're having this conversation through that. And, you know, I love the synchronicities of the world and the way they work. And I also uh, started to have a bit of resentment towards the platform because I felt like in a lot of ways, um, I sort of forgot that I had a choice, you know, <laughs> in a way. And that if, if Instagram or a social media platform says, hey, you got to create this type of content. And if you create this type of content, you'll be on the Discover page and we'll give you more exposure or you'll get more interactions. And I, I found it was just ridiculous that if you're any business and you have a thousand people who follow you that have literally said, I'm willing to trade my attention for what you uh, provide for my attention. Um, and then Instagram says, okay, all the people are going to get to see. And then over time, Instagram, Facebook, all these platforms say actually only 10% of who you, who choose, you will even get to see it. You're going to have to pay for more. And I started to see just like how, okay, well, if I start to create content that only Instagram wants me to create, then now I'm, I'm disconnecting from a full part of myself in order to create content that Instagram wants. And then I'm also doing that to get the attention of other people. And so now I've become a conduit of extraction. And I thought, well, everyone who creates content, which is, you don't have to have a business. You, you're just a person sharing pictures, sharing thoughts. If they start to self-abandon in order to be part of an algorithm are ultimately becoming conduits of extraction. And I thought, well, of course, if you're a conduit of extraction, 
and you're not fully expressing yourself, which I'd say we're in a very interesting time in history too, that you can't really share how you feel about most things because you'll get canceled or you'll get um, censored, that that how can we not be anxious or depressed or sad or confused or and then we just watch more news and like our amygdala just keeps being hijacked and we can't figure out why we want more of it it feels like an interesting form of bondage or something i don't know uh <laughs> that you probably never had that said before to you but i'm curious what do you think about all of that i'd say the first reason that we end up spending so much time on our devices and feeling this anxiety is that we actually have behavioral addictions to our devices at this point, to our smartphones. And that's not official in terms of the American Psychiatric Association's definition of an addiction. But the last version of the DSM where they, they classify addictive behaviors was in 2013, which was basically light years ago, you know, before yeah. these social media platforms were even fully established. And um, they did include gambling as the first ever behavioral addiction, and then internet gaming as a potential disorder that should be should have further study. So I really think it's just a matter of time. But going back to what you were saying about feeling that you need to be on Instagram in case you miss anything, I think that that's the flip side of the slot machine aspect. So to take a step back, when I talk about our phones and apps being designed to mimic slot machines, I mean that they're deliberately designed to trigger the release of this brain chemical called dopamine which is our brain's way of recording when things are worth doing again. And our brains use dopamine to remind us to do things like eat and reproduce, both of which are essential, obviously, for the survival of our species. But the issue with dopamine is that your dopamine system isn't going to make a judgment about whether the behavior that triggered its release is actually worth doing again. If you encounter a dopamine trigger, your brain's just going to release dopamine and stop, and you're going to be compelled to repeat the behavior, even if as in, as is the case, I would argue, with social media, the behavior that you're repeating is not actually good for you. So dopamine is behind mm -hmm. all of our habits, both good and bad, and it's also uh, intimately involved in our addictions. So you've got that. Uh, sorry, and I should say that slot machines are deliberately designed to release dopamine because that's how you get people to stay glued in front of your machine and to continue to put money into it. And so what are some of the main dopamine triggers? Well, you have uncertainty. You, have the, you don't know what you're going to find when you check your phone. You don't know what the result will be when you pull the slot machine lever. And then the potential for rewards. So obviously with slot machines, it's money. In the case of our phones, it's potential often social affirmation in the form of likes and comments. Um, novelty is a big trigger. So anything that's new, so you'll always find something new on your phone. Bright colors. I mean, the more you know about dopamine triggers, the more you'll see that they are baked into every aspect of our most problematic apps. So that's the slot machine side. But the other side... I've come to realize is the anxiety of FOMO. We become so conditioned to believe that checking our phones is worth doing again and again, and that engaging with these apps is essential, right? That when we can't do those things or when we choose not to, we actually feel this sense of anxiety and the anxiety mm. feels uncomfortable. And so what do you do to alleviate your anxiety? Well, you check your phone or you post something new to Instagram to get those rewards and the cycle continues. So I think we're all really trapped in this, this, I don't know, yeah, cycle where we're compelled to check again and again because of dopamine. And then anytime we try to break away, our anxiety compels us to go right back to what we were doing. So I think that's a real tension a lot of people feel. And we forget that um, anytime we, we get so, so consumed by our FOMO in terms of what we might be missing out on if we don't engage with our phones and post and check apps frequently, that we miss out on what we definitely are missing in our real lives if we are mm -hmm. constantly 
devoting our attention to our phones. And as you were alluding to in terms of the algorithms and their effects on us, if you start to curate your content based on what you think the algorithm will like, yeah, you are becoming part of this terrible system where you yourself are trying to hijack your followers' attention, but you're also changing your own behavior based on a computer program. And if you start to think about that (laughs) to any serious degree, it's really creepy because you start to begin to question your own free will, both in terms of how you're making your own decisions, but then also how algorithms are shaping. Well, yeah, how how it's shaping how you yourself behave, you know, how many of your daily Mm. decisions were actually in some way influenced by an algorithm and how much do you actually have control over? So, I mean, I have this same tension. That's fascinating. That you feel in terms of, well, how do you how do you let people know about your work when the primary way people find out about such things right now is social media, but you don't want social media to control you. And I have a lot of tension around this, given obviously my work. And one yeah. solution I came up with is that I run these these feeds that are under the name Screen Life Balance. And if you follow those feeds, they're actually automated feeds that give you reminders to look up from your phone. So it makes me feel very subversive. Um, but the other thing I find myself doing when I actually post to my personal author account on Instagram is that I post things that I'm just like, there's no way anyone's going to see these things because the algorithm does not <laughs> like, I don't like even putting pictures of myself on my feed. So I do things like I'll go foraging for, for like wild, um, edible things. That's like a hobby I picked up during the pandemic. So I'm posting pictures of walnuts. And every time I do that, I'm like, Instagram is never showing my walnut pictures to anyone. And part of that delights me. It's totally ineffective as a business and marketing strategy. But I just <laughs> love the idea that like, I might create content that, that Instagram would, would find so boring or so not beneficial for Instagram is not showing it to anyone. Now, I will tell you, I think my adventures in trying to make acorn flour are hilarious. But <laughs> I don't know. So you get caught up in this thing. But I do think that there's a potential to use these tools for good, but it requires an awful lot of effort. And there's so much noise. And I personally don't feel like I've really found the best way to do that, because it's very easy to get sucked into the not good aspects of them. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think what I find really frustrating personally about social media is that ostensibly, it can connect us. I do think there's ways to find connection, like you and I, you know, found each other in a roundabout way through social media. But it's so difficult to find meaningful connections amidst this chaos of algorithmically chosen content that's there not to enhance our lives, but instead to steal our time and attention from literally under our noses. Yeah. And I I think about the biological process that you're speaking to that, like, how do we even stand a chance against teams of hundreds of people who work in the behavioral science departments of these. That's why even the idea, like, is this an addiction or not? Do we need the American Psychiatric Association to sort of validate it? It's like, well, just the means to which they're trying to create the apps in order to garner more attention tells you that they're tapping into every single biological sort of uh, hanging fruit that they can. And, you know, I think as an adult, I use that term very uh, carefully, that at least I'm inquisitive about my relationship with things, you know, like I, one, study relationships, but that started romantically, but it's really about everything. You know, am I willing to not speak my own truth at the cost of a relationship? How's that dissimilar to social media? And I think of the level of self-censorship 
that has had to occur for a lot of people, even if they have a general opinion that's just about discussion or diverse, diverse thought, that often can't even exist on a social media thread without being um, trolled. And, you know, it's, I just feel like there's so much momentum working against the simplicity of our biology till we can hit these sort of moments where we can't carry anymore and our anxiety becomes so much or whatever it might be that we have to take this moment to say, you know, am I self-censoring? You know, I really feel like on social media, I've felt split because I have a lot of thoughts on what's currently going on in the world. And I haven't necessarily shared them on social media because social media will just essentially censor me and make it so my account doesn't exist anymore. And then there's another part of me that now that I've discovered this aspect of my relationship that I'm like, well, then burn it all to the fucking ground. Like if that's if if it requires my self-abandonment, I want nothing to do with it. And I feel that way about like I never want to be in any relationship where I don't get to participate in the negotiation of the terms. Yeah. And I think that's true of everything, you know. Well, I think that one way to think about it is that, well, first of all, we are in a relationship right now with technology. I think it's really interesting that when I tell people I wrote a book called How to Break Up with Your Phone, no one I've ever said that title to has looked at me with a confused look. They're not like, what do you mean by break up with my daughter? Right. Instead, they say either I need to do that or <laughs> my husband or my, <laughs> my wife partner, yeah. needs to do that. Right? <laughs> yeah. so everyone gets it because we do have this relationship with That's our funny. devices because there's an interaction because they're designed to reach out and interact with us in a way that no other technology ever has before. So people will say, what's different about smart, you know, smartphones are the same as TV. Like, we're just scared of these new technologies. And it's like, no, as Tristan Harris, the guy I, I mentioned earlier points out your television did not an old-fashioned telephone didn't have thousands of engineers on the other side who are able to design <laughs> and engineer ways to deliberately reach out and distract you and interrupt your present experience it was a one-way interaction now yeah. we're in relationships you know it's it's very like i would never write a follow-up called how to break up your toaster oven because that would be ridiculous <laughs> even though it's a it is a technology so I think that the first step to take is to try to get out of that relationship and to treat our phones and their apps in the same way we treat other technologies, which is to say as tools. Your toaster oven mm-hmm. makes toast for you, right? Or, or cooks things or whatever. Your radio plays music or tells you the news. It's very difficult to get sucked into a radio. And so I think we need to create boundaries for ourselves and and set our purposes or establish purposes for ourselves so that, you know, okay, maybe you feel that you do have to continue to do something with social media because you do have a large platform and that is how you reach your audience. But if you know, that's the purpose, then maybe you can avoid getting sucked into some of the other negative things. And also maybe social media isn't the place to try to fully express your personality because that's not what you're using it for. You know, I yeah. think there's other ways. I completely agree. Like, I think that one of the negative effects of social media, in addition to self censorship and this fear of being judged for our opinions or for our worst days or our worst moments, right, is that we're just less able to be playful. And that ties into the theme of my new book, The Power of Fun, where you can't have fun if you're not being playful. And social media does not encourage that, both because we post idealized versions of our own lives and we post perfect perfected pictures and mm-hmm. not real life right and also because we fear being criticized we want to get those likes and comments so we're not playful 
And, and that just blocks our ability to have fun. And I argue that having fun, the moments in which we have fun are the moments in which we feel the most alive. So if you walk that logic back, <laughs> the more you allow yourself to be controlled by social media, the less alive you're going to feel. So again, you know, yeah. when I try to interact with these apps, and as you know, Mark, we can talk about this, the difficulty of us connecting in the first place. I really haven't figured out how to use Instagram. First of all, I don't care about it that much. But second, I find it very confusing. But I do know <laughs> that my purpose with Instagram is to spread the messages of my books. So I try to keep that in mind so that I don't get sucked into other things that would hijack my attention and hijack my own brain. Because as you alluded to, our brains are actually being manipulated. Our devices and apps are designed to trigger chemical changes in our brains and bodies that get in the way of how we actually want to live our lives. And that, if you ask me, is really messed up and <laughs> immoral and unfortunately is not going to change on the part of the app makers because that is what their business model is based on. So we need to do what we can to put pressure on them as consumers to change some of these aspects, but also to take back control ourselves because we do have more control than we realize. And that's yeah, not putting them off the hook, by the way, at all. Like I, I do also think there should be legislative action. And I think that the companies themselves should be, I mean, we should ideally in my dream scenario, we all become so disenchanted by social media and so frankly disgusted by what it's doing to us that we voluntarily choose not to interact with it and instead find connection in more meaningful and authentic ways. And I do think there's some evidence that, these companies are beginning to worry about it. If you look at some of the documents being leaked by the Facebook files, the Facebook whistleblower, in terms of how Instagram and Facebook are trying to target ever younger users because they're worried about losing their, quote, user base, which is a really ominous choice of terminology. And there are clearly yeah. <laughs> so many parallels between what social media companies' strategies are and the strategies of tobacco companies. If you can hook them right. while they're young, you have them for life. And that's really concerning but on the flip side, it's interesting that they are so worried about losing their user base. And so that is, if I'm trying to be hopeful at all about this, I do find that to be somewhat a cause for optimism. Yeah, you think about the integration into our lives when it becomes so integrated into our lives. It's like, what is our life without that thing? And you know, I think of the the technological moment of the singularity, you know, and, and for those of you listening who are maybe not sure what that is, that's where literally technology and humanity become one, that there's no delineation really. And I, I don't know that we're not already there because I was thinking about this the other day. Like if you're basically subcontracting your memory storage and all these things to your phone, your phone becomes this integrated part of your life and you are now in the access. There is no line between you and your phone, especially if it's so dopamine rich you know, uh, like we weren't meant to have that many hits all the time. And then all of a sudden when you're not getting that many hits, you have to sit in the void of the space of the thing that has been filling your cup, which is, you know, I, I think of Gabor Mate's work where he says, like, we always ask the question, why the addiction instead of why the pain? Mm. And I really think when the phone pulls us away from presence, usually what's in that presence is, is grief, is, is maybe anger, is are emotions that we've never even witnessed, especially like you and I come from the generation where phones did not exist in our parents' hands. They didn't exist in our hands. Uh, and because of that, we didn't observe parents disconnected. Like you were talking about that, 
that story with the the mother on her phone, I see that <laughs> in, me. in all. <laughs> oh yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and I think what's interesting is like you observe that all the time at restaurants. Couples both are on a phone. Families all on a phone at a restaurant. Walking down the street, and I, I mean, I you were saying about the facial things. I also wonder how masks will couple with that too. This l- lack of ability to see attunement and to experience attunement. And then when you're older, you're using your phone just like your parent did to not be present to your own suffering and the lack of attunement you got from the humans around you. And it feels to me like a real sort of emergency. Like, Yeah, I mean, yeah. there's a couple of thoughts you bring to mind there. First, just, yeah, totally with you and feeling incredibly depressed when I see that. There's, it, I used to get upset when I would see parents or caregivers on their phones while pushing strollers, but now you see strollers with phone holders or tablet holders. No way. For Do the they? Baby. Yes. So you have for a- the baby. Yes. Oh, I thought you meant for the parent. No, no. It's for, for the baby. The so baby. they don't look at birds and the clouds yep. and things like that. Yep. And I remember one of the most magical I didn't things know this. about my, when my daughter was a baby and I'm not a baby person, by the way, I was like, <laughs> this is the thing. I'm not like, Oh, babies. But I remember holding her once <laughs> and looking at her face and she was gazing up at something. And I, thought, what is she looking at? I was at my in-law's house in their backyard and she was looking up at these pine trees, this huge pine tree and its its branches were swaying in the wind. She was looking at the silhouette of these branches against the sky. And I looked up with her and I thought, how amazing. I wouldn't have noticed that except for the fact that I saw her looking at it. And she's completely content and entertained by the natural world because it's amazing. The natural world, the world around us, real life is amazing. It's insane. It's insane. And and I also see, you know, I remember getting off a plane once back when taking planes was something I did and seeing a kid who had gotten off this plane in San Diego and was like a toddler. And he was kind of walking around smiling at strangers and he was looking out the window. It was around sunset and he was so engaged in the world and and he was not being disruptive, right? I mean, we can have a separate conversation about how kids are often just kids and we think they're disruptive. But this kid was like totally content. And I watched one of the parents hand this kid, put him in a stroller and hand him a phone. And his attention totally went to the phone to this. It was like some game that a toddler could play where he was basically blowing things up. And I thought that is so sad to me because this kid was engaged in the world. He wasn't bothering anyone because let's be honest, when parents give, and I'm as a parent myself, I'm not being super judgy about parents, but so often we give our phones to kids as drugs, if we're being honest, to get them to shut up, right? And I'm like, this kid didn't even need that. He was completely engaged. And now you just took life away from him. And it reminds me of something that this guy, David Greenfield, once told me, and he's the founder of the Center for Internet and Technology Addiction, which he founded in 1997. So he was way ahead of his time. And he's a pioneer. Yeah. And he told me that, you know, the smartphone dull. One of the saddest things about technology addiction is that it dulls reality and that the the feeling of pleasure you would get from something in real life, like the smile of a friend or a sunset dulls in comparison to what you get from the dopamine hits provided by technology. And one thing he sees with his patients is that it takes a lot of work and effort to reacclimate and recalibrate their dopamine system so they can get the same pleasure from actual life as they become accustomed to getting from their phones. And of course, the issue is that quick hits of dopamine are not actually satisfaction or meaning or joy or fun. Right. Dopamine hits, they're short-term hits of pleasure that are there to motivate us to do something, but they're just like junk food, right? They're enjoyable in certain quantities, but then if you become too reliant on them or binge consume sources of dopamine, you're going to end up feeling gross and empty. 
And then you're going to need to try to fill that void going to your point about the void within us. And you're going to seek out ever more dopamine. And speaking of which, I completely agree that in many cases we seek these distractions and we're compelled to consume them because of this fear of emptiness inside. And one of the, it's so funny, a lot of, I'm just, I feel like I'm doing a lot of references to my book, The Power of Fun, that make it seem not fun at all, but trust me, it is. <laughs> one of the things I write about in there is um, in Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, he talks about oh, one of my faves. Yeah, the Sunday neurosis when the void within us becomes manifest. <laughs> and you're like, thanks, Victor. <laughs> and it refers to an existential vacuum. And I actually, yeah, I might, well, this is actually the inspiration for having written this book about fun because I experienced exactly what we're talking about. As part of my research for how to break up with your phone, my husband and I got into this habit that I highly recommend your listeners experiment with of taking 24 hour breaks from our screens, all screens in our case, like a kind of digital Sabbath. And we would do this from Friday to Saturday nights. And there was this moment on one Saturday afternoon when I was sitting on the couch in the same room I'm talking to you from right now. My daughter was taking a nap and my husband was out of the house and I was sitting on the couch. I had this whole hour and I could do whatever I wanted to with it, which was a glorious moment in early parenting. I wasn't that tired that day. And I realized I could not think of anything I wanted to do. I didn't want to read. I didn't have a project. And going to what we're speaking about in terms of this existential vacuum and Sunday neurosis. I mean, this was a Saturday, but it was basically exactly the same thing. I thought, Oh my God, like I am just sitting here waiting for time to pass so that I can have dinner. And that really means I'm waiting to die. That's where I went with that. (laughs) And I was like, that's not okay. I like the extreme. That's good. Yeah, Catastrophic thinking. Very one of my, my life skills, I put it on my resume, but (laughs) And I thought that's not how I want to live my life. So going back to what we were saying in terms of turning personal issues into professional projects, I thought, huh, well, I should explore this and maybe try to write a book about it. Um, But before that, like with a segue between these two things is that as I'm sitting there on the couch and I'm thinking, oh, my God, I'm just waiting to die. I thought, well, I should ask myself one of the questions that I asked people when I was writing how to break up with your phone, which was what's something you say you want to do but you supposedly don't have time for. And my answer to that question was learn to play the guitar because I I have a Uh guitar. I had a guitar that my grandmother had given me money to buy during college. And she and I were really close and she played guitar herself. So I felt bad. I'd never learned to play it. And I've got a background in music because I played piano since I was a kid, but I never learned the guitar. So I also remembered I'd seen a flyer around my neighborhood for these music classes And so the next time I was back online, I signed up for this music class because there was a group adult guitar class that happened on Wednesday nights. And I was nervous about it. You know, I was joining in the middle of this class. I only knew like three chords, but I got to the studio and it was this BYOB, totally laid back, no pressure class. Most of the other students were other parents. And we just played together, literally and metaphorically. And I quickly began to realize that I left Wednesday nights with this exuberance and this feeling of being alive that, you know, while I I am a, I think, pretty happy person, and I have a wonderful life to begin with. So I was in a good place to start with. But I hadn't felt this feeling of exuberance recently, it felt familiar, but it was not a common occurrence. And I got really into questioning what that feeling was. And at first, I thought maybe that was because I was learning a new skill, you know, I was like, was this feeling because sorry to back up, I realized I was having fun. I was like, Oh, that's what's happening. I'm having fun. (laughs) <laughs> this feels fantastic. How do I have more of it? I want more of this. 
And at first I thought, well, maybe I just need to do more stuff because I, I'm learning this skill. Maybe I need to learn more skills. I think that's something a lot of people think is like, oh, if you want to have more fun, you need to do more. But then I realized it was not about the skill. Like it was nice to learn the skill, but it was something bigger that was going on. And so I got very curious about that and decided that I wanted to write a book about it. And then I was fascinated to discover that no one had really defined fun. Like there's, there's a lot of research on happiness, as you know, and, and fulfillment and joy and gratitude and all this stuff, but not much, pretty much nothing about fun per se. And just kind of lame definitions, like it's lighthearted pleasure. But that's not what I was feeling. Sure, there was lighthearted pleasure, but it was much more profound. So I ended up coming up with a definition of my own, which I checked with um, what I called the Fun Squad, which was this global group of volunteers I recruited to help me. And my proposed definition, which they confirmed, is that it's the fun is, is the confluence of playfulness, connection, and flow. With that being the psychological state of being totally engrossed in your present experience to the point that you lose track of time. And all three of those states are great on their own. But when you experience all three of them together, you experience what I think of as true fun. And the reason I call it true fun is that I think it stands in direct contrast to what I call fake fun, which is the dopamine driven kind of quick hits of pleasure, junk food kind of thing that we get from things such as social media, where we think it's fun because it's marketed to us as fun. But if you ask ourselves how we feel afterwards, we feel dead inside. It is the opposite of fun. So I became totally fascinated by how our lack of definition of fun leaves us vulnerable to any company or person who wants to market their products to us as fun because we don't question it. And so I ended up writing this whole book about how to harness this power of fun for ourselves. And one thing I was totally fascinated by was that fun doesn't just feel good in the moment. It actually is really good for us, both psychologically and physically. And it stands in direct contrast to the negative effects of screen time. So where many things we do on our screen time separate us, isolate us, stress us out, and just makes us anxious, fun brings us closer together. It reduces our stress. And it makes us feel more playful and happier. And if you look into the physiology of what happens in our bodies when we engage in these two separate activities, you can find that our screen time in many cases is stressing us out and increasing our cortisol levels. And cortisol is a stress hormone that's great in short bursts if you're trying to run away from something, but it's not good in the long term. It increases our risk of everything from heart, heart disease and heart attack and stroke to even dementia and cancer. Like You don't want your cortisol levels elevated over time. But fun reduces stress levels and therefore reduces these baseline cortisol levels. And therefore, it's not crazy to say that by having more fun, you're actually potentially elongating your own life. So I was just blown away by all of these unanticipated potential benefits of fun and then also how they stood in contrast to screen time. Because when I first got curious about it, I wasn't thinking about those as, as opposite sides of anything. I just was interested in fun and thought that screen time was a separate thing. But now I've become convinced it's the antidote to all of the problems that are being caused by screen time. And going back to what you were saying in terms of this existential vacuum, what I found is if you fill your life with moments of playfulness, connection, and flow, you won't feel that existential vacuum. Because I know that because I am prone to that vacuum. I am full of Sunday neurosis. And now I can tell you when I have some free time, that I don't want to spend on my screens because honestly, like screens lose their allure when you experience the good stuff. It's like if all you're looking for your whole life is like, I don't know, off-brand Doritos, and then suddenly you're presented with this glorious feast, you're like, I don't want that anymore because I tasted the good stuff. So now I can tell you, like, if I have free time, I'm going to practice my guitar so that I can then get together with friends 
and spend time playing music together because that brings me true joy. And I know I'm totally rambling, but one thing that I thought was really, or think that's really amazing about fun is that, I mean, as you know, we're also obsessed with happiness, right? We all want to be happy, but what is happiness? It's really a philosophical, if I ask you if you're happy, we'll probably have a philosophical discussion about what is happiness, you know, it's going to be a long conversation. But if I ask you, did you have fun last weekend or true fun? You'll be able to tell me yes or no pretty quickly. Like you'll just know. And that's amazing because what I've realized is that when we're having true fun, we are inevitably happy. We are happy in those moments. That means that the more you can have fun, the happier you will be. So my conclusion is the path to happiness. You don't need to get philosophical. The path to happiness lies in the every everyday experience of fun. And so the more opportunities we can give ourselves to experience some combination of playfulness, connection, and flow, the happier we'll be in our everyday moments, and therefore the happier we'll be overall. So you will end up achieving this nebulous goal of happiness without having to try to aim directly at it. And I just love the fact that fun gives us this practical way to achieve this goal. And then you just get less obsessed with it to begin with because you don't have to spend so much time thinking, am I happy? I don't know if I'm happy because you're having so much fun. Yeah, you're experiencing joy. And I, that idea of this being sort of the antidote to what technology has can become for us is beautiful. Like to think like, oh, well, when you put your phone down and you, you know, I think most of us, at least I, I will take the grenade here, can say, we likely have had or have a challenging, addictive, dysfunctional relationship with our technology. Okay, if that's true, which the beginning of healing of anything is the acceptance of its truth, then it's like, what do I do in the void? Well, right. Like you don't have to marinate in your pain, although I think it's important to feel, learn that feeling pain is actually, as Viktor Frankl would very much say, is actually important in order to transform you and to know where you have pain is where we need presence and we need healing. And also that it doesn't have to be only that, that you can now take this space that you've maybe never had, especially if you've only known life with a smartphone that now you're like, Oh shit, there's so much like you were talking about uh, your, your child went looking up at the trees. Like you realize the miracle of, of, of the forest of, the desert of everything of someone else's eyes, you know, and, and to then be able to go on adventures and find fun. So like when you consider someone's access to fun or like how we begin to access it, what is usually getting in the way other than, is there something other than our phones? I don't know. It's so funny. So I have a quiz. I created quizzes for the book and one of them is why aren't you having fun? (laughs) <laughs> and the point of the quiz is to help you identify which of those three states, playfulness, connection, or flow, is your biggest impediment. Ah. I don't have a big data set yet, but I believe in the vast majority of cases it's going to be flow and that phones will be – well, I know phones are the biggest culprit. So anything that distracts us will pull us out of flow. And since flow is a definitional part of fun, it's going to prevent us from having fun. So I will say that's the lowest hanging fruit. Um, but – I think that we also have, well, I don't know. I really do think that that's the, that, that is the biggest thing. I also think we just, we've gotten so used to treating our lives as performances that we've lost sight of or stopped asking ourselves if we ever asked ourselves to begin with, what do we actually enjoy? Mm. 
you know, what would we do? I mean, this is so, it, it brings to mind that cliche of like dance as if no one's dance, no one's watching. But honestly, what would you do if you weren't worried about posting it to Instagram? Or what right. would you give yourself the freedom to try? Like one of the consequences for me personally of this pursuit of fun has been that, you know, I was taking guitar. Now I'm taking two guitar classes. <laughs> but I also started to take drum lessons because there was this amazing drum teacher at this music studio. And so just this past weekend, there was an open mic at this studio. We do these outdoor open mics. First of all, never would have Love thought. Love open mics. Yeah. But I never think that I would do anything in an open mic. And I did several things at this open mic. And one of them was to play and sing uh, Undone, the sweater song by Weezer. Yeah, Weezer. Nice. <laughs> With my drum teacher on guitar, a friend I made through my class also playing guitar and me on drums. And we're like belting it out. And are we perfect? No. Not at all. No one's going to be requesting that we cover, at least that I play drums to their next gig. But it was so fun. And I think that for me, you know, stepping away from this performative aspect of life, I mean, I, I like to think I wasn't in that, but I was, I was certainly allowing my time to be filled. I think that's the other thing is we're allowing our free time to be filled. Mm. And the average person before the pandemic was spending four hours a day just on their phones, which is crazy. That's like a quarter of your waking life, and it's just the phone, not your computer, not your television, right? So we're spending most of our lives staring at screens. And once you reclaim that time, you suddenly realize, oh, you actually have a lot more time than you thought you did. We're just spending it right now on passive consumption. And so I think that going to your question about what one of the main obstacles is, is that we've just allowed our time to be filled instead of asking ourselves, what are we actually interested in? What do we want to learn more about? What do we want to try? What would we do if we weren't worried about other people's judgment? What did we love when we were kids? Adults are so stodgy. <laughs> There's a great book called Beginners by Tom Vanderbilt about becoming an adult beginner and the value and the joy that can come from that. And one thing that he says that I love is that when we are grown up, somehow we think our identities are fixed. We think that, you know, I'm Catherine and I, I'm a writer and I don't know how to draw, for example. Instead of adding on what a word that I encourage my own daughter to use, which is yet. I don't know how to draw well yet. Yeah, I, like I could, that. you know, like I didn't drum and I don't know if I'm, I'm not sure if I would call myself a drummer yet. Like one of the things Tom Vanderbilt says is there's a really cool moment when you begin to add these new skills as part of your identity. And then suddenly you're a kind of a new uh, version. Of that's cool. Like I am <laughs> I a drummer now. Skill. I am a guitarist. I am a writer. I am. a Yeah. yeah. Right now, I'm still at the point where I'll say I am taking the drums. But that's so cool <laughs> to me that, you know, that I don't have to just be a fixed version of myself. But I think one of the main obstacles that we have when it comes to fun is that we think we just assume that our identities are fixed as adults and we're scared to try new things. So I think that one of the beauties of prioritizing fun is that it allows us to explore new facets of ourselves and discover parts of ourselves we didn't even know existed. And that, in fact, might not exist yet. I find that hugely exciting. That's cool. And I and it's never going to happen if you spend all your time staring at your phone. You know, I used to think about, well, I, yeah, the Instagram stories. I was like, we're so obsessed with creating stories for Instagram. Why don't we be the story of our own life? Mm. <laughs> like, why are we just performing? It's so boring. Or I think, you know, a lot of journalists, they spend a lot of time on Twitter because that's where journalists hang out. And then they just have these, you know, vacuums of conversations with other journalists. I'm thinking you're never going to break a story if you're just looking at right. other people's journalistic tweets. Like you need to be out in the world. And as a somewhat related thing, just sorry, I'm remembering all the things you said in your last comment, but in terms of the wonders and the beauties that exist around us in the 
in our daily world that we don't really call attention to. One exercise I recommend that people try if they're trying to develop what I call a fun mindset and open themselves to opportunities for fun. Well, two things. First is to notice moments in your pre-existing, pre-existing moments of playfulness, connection, and flow that exist in your life right now. Because there's probably more than you think. You know, even just having a smile with a stranger above their mask is a moment of connection or having even like a work call where you actually got involved in it and you you really felt engrossed. That's flow um, or playfulness where you, I don't know, pet a puppy or something like we have these little moments. And I think there's a value in drawing attention to them and labeling them. And another thing I love to do is to label delights. So I, re- I read this book called The Book of Delights by this poet, Ross Gay, who wrote a essay every day for a year about something that delighted him which is intense, made me feel a little inadequate as a writer. (laughs) But the idea that he has is he just noticed something every day that delighted him. And it didn't have to be a huge thing. You know, one thing he's delighted by is just purple, like all the places in the natural world where purple shows up. And he talks about how when he started to notice delight, it was as if he was tuning into a a radio frequency for delight. And the more delights he noticed, the more delights presented themselves to him. And one thing I loved about his delight practice is that he labels them. He'll actually put a finger in the air and say delight. And in the book, he puts a parenthesis and it's delight. And so I started a practice of doing that myself and also of sharing delights with friends over text messages, going back to our conversation about how can you use technology for good. And and that's something I'm trying to do on social media is to encourage people, if they're going to be on social media, to use it to share a delight. That's cool. Seeing them, I, I posted something about this. And then someone posted a picture of moss and, and like little like fairy kind of like moss. And she said, delight. And when I saw that, I felt a little bit of delight myself. And when I get a delight text message from a friend, it's, I have this chain going on with some friends I don't get to see very frequently. When I see a message from one of them with something that delights them, it delights me. I mean, it's gone to the point I actually have a bracelet on my wrist here that said that I had made that says delight because I think it's such a powerful practice. And indeed, if you look into the scientific literature of positive psychology and some of the exercises that have been validated and proven to boost our moods and reduce our symptoms of anxiety and depression, noticing positivity is one, uh, labeling it is another, and accompanying your noticing with a physical gesture is also especially effective. Oh, that's cool. It's not just like a little delightful practice, which it is. It actually is a proven way to boost your mood. And I would argue to open yourself to noticing more beauty around you, but also moments for potential playfulness, connection and flow, and therefore for fun. So I think those are some ways we can begin to counterbalance some of the negative effects of screen time and break the spell that it holds over us. Because I think disenchantment is a really powerful tool, which gets me to my last point I wanted to make, which is that um, one of the things I think is worth keeping in mind about habits in particular, and something that Charles Duhigg makes in his, the point he makes in his book, The Power of Habit, is we can't break habits. We can only change our habits. Mm. But the easiest way to change your habits is not to rely on willpower. Because as you were saying, once you take away the thing that you habitually use or that you're addicted to, you're going to be left with emptiness. And you're going to be, if you're relying on your willpower to not engage with that again, it's only going to be a matter of time before it runs out. The most effective way to change that habit is to give yourself an appealing alternative, something that you'd rather do instead, so that the thing you were addicted to or that you're habitually using that you're trying to change is no longer appealing to you. And he talks about this. And so does this guy, Judson Brewer, who's a mindfulness oriented neuroscientist about cigarettes. If you actually are trying to stop smoking, 
and you're able to really pay attention to how cigarettes taste and make you smell and kind of really tune into the experience of it, Judson Brewer in particular has found that people become disenchanted and disgusted by their own habits to the point that they don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> so all that is to say, I think that if you focus on fun and you identify things that are sources of potential playfulness and connection and flow for you, you can engage in those things during the time you used to spend on your screens. You're going to feel better as a result because true fun feels better than fake fun. And then you're just not going to want to spend as much time on Instagram or whatever else you're doing right. on your phone because you'll have this much better alternative instead. You won't, I think that's just the most powerful way to change our habits and get back to living our lives. Yeah, you're speaking to this uh, taking full responsibility for where our attention goes and how our mind works. Um, you know, I, I've studied positive psychology as well, and I was fascinated just by if you, you know, like ultimately, what does our 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 uh, technology show us or the news? You know, is negativity, and we have a bias to look for the negative. Till we don't, you know, till what you're saying. And I love this sort of interesting language delineation between gratitude and delight. There's something somatically I feel different uh, about delight. Yeah, it's interesting because they're very similar practices. If you think about delight, it is a sort of delight. Pra I'm sorry, a gratitude practice. But there's yeah. something about it that to me feels lighter and easier. Agreed. And more accessible. You know, if you're if you're talking about gratitude and keeping a gratitude journal. And that can kind of feel like a little bit of a burden, even though, you know, yeah. it's good for you, you know, like eating fiber or something. I mean, it doesn't <laughs> fiber, but yeah, but delight is really kind of the same thing, but it's easier and it's just lighter, you know, and it's something feels cool. You can engage with other people about without kind of asking them to like embark on a project with you. It's more just like, Hey, let's just, let's just notice delights. Um, it, I think the playfulness makes a big difference. Yeah. Yeah, it does feel because I know in the research, when you have to do a gratitude journal every day, you all of a sudden lose a lot of the benefits of gratitude because you still feel like it's work. And yeah, that idea of delight, right. Mm -hmm. And that idea of delight, what you're inviting us to do in that practice is to actually reprogram what we're looking for. So we're starting to look for the positive. And in Barbara Fredrickson's work on positive emotion, she talks about like how the broaden and build theory that like positivity allowed us to like see more. And the power of fun, totally. Oh, right sure? on. Yeah, no, but yeah. no, but that I think that's like it actually takes this deliberate level of intention to change how we want to interact with the world. And if you're constantly looking for a way to find delight, even in an interaction, but especially when your phone, your your eyes are not in a phone, they're actually looking up. I think about how many synchronistic, serendipitous things, not to overuse those words today, but how, you know, I remember seeing an ad on or a video on YouTube that went viral where it had a woman walking through down the street, looking at a map on Google Maps and then like walking around and finding her thing. And then it had an alternate story where she didn't have her phone and she asked for directions from a guy and then it showed them getting married years later. And I really think that is... You know, when someone says to me, I'm having a really hard time meeting someone or blah, 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 blah. I'm like, well, don't use your phone in line or whenever you're always everywhere. Because uh, that data you shared about the smiling with strangers, what a beautiful like invitation. What did you call it? That that behavior? Uh, oh, the fleeting, fleeting interactions. 
Yeah, and the, and like an invitation to play. Oh yes, play signals, play signals. Yeah, like it is so. It's funny now, like wearing a mask sometimes, where I smile underneath the mask at a stranger, but neither of us actually get to experience that. In a way, I I, I feel a bit sad as it happens because I'm like, oh, I remember when we used to be able to do <laughs> that. And I know you have to and, look at people's eyes, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. I'm curious, um, when you think, and I just noticed my browser just did that thing again. It's not shut off, but I just, it's giving me a warning. Um, I'm curious when you looked at, just so we can all start to first everyone buy this book because it sounds incredible and I can't wait. I think of fun and I think of moments where you ask like to sort of do a, a, a census of times you've had fun and moments you've had fun. What were the characteristics of fun in that? Like, what do you find most people are doing? Like, it sounds to me like learning something new, adventure. Uh, when you talk about connection, is it usually like with a group of friends? Like, were there certain, I know you use playfulness, connection, and flow, but I'm curious, were there activities that were really correlated? Yeah, thank you for asking that question, because that's exactly what, so the process of um, writing the book followed me exploring those very questions. So the first thing I did was ask people before I proposed a definition, I asked people to just share with me experiences from their lives that they would describe as having been quote, so fun, because at that point, I didn't even have the terms uh, true fun in my mind. And I did this right in the beginning of the pandemic, this was maybe, I mean, maybe the thick of the that summer. So it was like in August when I sent out this survey, and I got cumulatively thousands of anecdotes from people. And I read through them. First of all, I noticed something that I found really interesting was that they were very, they made me very joyful to read. Like I would find myself smiling, but sometimes I also was crying at the same time. And I realized that was because there was something very profound and moving about them. Cool. Going back to the thing I was saying about how fun is not just lighthearted pleasure. Like when people were with no other prompt other than what was so fun, they were telling me these moments of experiences they'd had with their grandparents or with their best friend or with there's one example I have in my book with these um, Siberian orphans, you know, and just these, these life affirming moments that brought tears to my eyes. And what I realized and what I checked with them is that they all did have these elements, as I was saying, of playfulness, connection and flow. And my conclusion is that really is a universal definition of fun is that true fun is playful, connected flow. To answer your question about connection, the question I had is, well, can you have fun alone? And I think that it is possible for some people to have fun alone. And there's some cases in which your sense of flow is so powerful that that is the form of connection, the flow itself becomes connection. But one thing I found fascinating was that in the vast majority of anecdotes that people shared, other people were involved. And I actually did ask a question in this survey, which was, what, if anything, surprised you about your own answers? I just threw that in there as kind of like an aside. I wasn't really, I just was trying to think of all the things I could ask. Fascinating. Numerous people said, I was surprised by the fact that I am a self-proclaimed introvert, and yet all the stories I just told you involve other people. <laughs> and that made me conclude that, yeah, human connection is, in most cases, integral to fun. And the difference between introverts and extroverts is that it might be a different type of interaction or a different size group, but there often is a human being involved. It can yeah, also be a dog. It's like shared, a shared moment. A dog, for yeah, sure. Agreed. And then in terms of the question about the activities, what I came to conclude is that while there is this universal definition of playful connected flow that defines true fun, each of us achieves that state through different 
in different ways. So first of all, true fun can never be guaranteed because even if you truly love an activity, like I was saying, you know, I love playing music with friends. Sometimes it's going to be euphorically fun and sometimes it's going to be just enjoyable. And then it's conceivable that there might be some time when it's not fun at all. I've never experienced that, but it's yeah. possible, right? <laughs> yeah. So activities themselves are not fun, which I think is really important to remember because of the point I was alluding to earlier about how our tendency is to think if we want to have more fun, we need to pack our schedules. And then we feel overwhelmed because our schedules are too packed already. So what I came to conclude, though, is that for each of us, we have a personal collection of what I call fun magnets, which is to say the activities, people and settings that are the most likely to generate fun for us personally. And for me, cool. you know, that would include playing music with friends or swing dancing or um, playing, you know, going on walks with my daughter or hosting dinner parties with my husband. Like there's a certain collection of things or going to summer camps. I love summer camps. Interestingly, one big line in this well, literal line in the sand kind of was beaches. Some people find beaches like incredible fun magnets, and then some people absolutely hate them. So there's like a interesting contrast. In That's some cases. funny. Yeah. But then, you know, similarly, we all have people with whom we often have fun. I remember a friend of mine describing someone she knew who was just such a fun magnet for her that she remembered going on an errand to a gas station. And this person made that trip to the gas station tremendously fun just because they're such a fun person. So all that is to say that, again, while the definition is universal, we each find fun through different avenues and we have this collection of fun magnets. And so one thing I encourage people to do is to reflect back on some of their past experiences of times that they would describe as truly having been fun and then look for themes. Also just take note of your day-to-day -day existence. When were these moments of playfulness, connection, and flow? When did they happen on their own? And then when did they happen all together? Because if they happened all together, it was true fun. And you should ask yourself, who were you with? What were you yeah. doing? Where were you? You could also ask yourself, were there any objects involved? Like, was there, you know, pickleball? That's a huge fun magnet for a lot of people right now. I hear I've played so it. Many. It's fun. It is fun. Right? Like, and most people can play it. That's, so it seems like that may be part of the appeal, right? But anyway, so you try to figure out your fun magnets. And what I love about that is that, again, you know, I'm really into the idea of trying to turn this, these nebulous abstract constructs concepts into things you can pin down right you can't say i'm gonna have fun this saturday night like from seven to ten i'm gonna have fun like you're gonna fail and you're gonna feel bad it's just too much pressure and it doesn't give you a plan but if you know that a particular activity or group of people or place is a fun magnet for you you can put that on your schedule so one way to build more fun or rather more opportunities for fun into your life is to figure out those fun magnets and then just put more of them into your schedule and therefore up your chances of having true fun. And then the next step I recommend people take is to look at those fun magnets and ask yourself, well, what are the characteristics of those things that make them fun? You know, for me, clearly like music makes things more fun or physicality. And I refer to those things as fun factors. And I have a whole list in the book, but you can start on your own by just pulling out like, you know, was this spontaneity? Is that fun for me? Or how about risk or thrill? Because those are slightly different or um, big groups or small groups, like what were the characteristics? Because the better you understand these fun factors, the more you'll be able to generate new ideas for things to try. And so to go back to what you were saying, yes, novelty is itself a fun factor, but in general, doing new things is a very powerful way to attract more fun. Because even if you don't end up loving the activity itself, you may just have such a ridiculous or absurd time trying it that it becomes fun on its own. So basically, you know, if you keep in mind this universal definition of playfulness, connection and flow, your next step is to figure out the activities and settings and people that are the most likely to put you in those states. 
And then if you want to take it like bonus step further, figure out what the characteristics of those magnets are and use those fun factors to come up with even more ideas. And I think that the more you do that, the more concrete actions you can take to have more fun. And then going back to what we've been talking about, the more fun you're having, the less time you're going to spend on your screens because they're just not that fun. Amen. I mean, I feel like, you know, we were speaking before about how biologically we sort of don't stand a chance against the behavioral scientists who have created this technology. But in a way, technology doesn't stand a chance against the biology when it's harnessed, which is really fascinating. You know, that, I like that, that um, angle on it. Yeah. It's yeah. Like we are manipulated, but we can take it back by, by taking control of our own biology right. and neurophysiology. Like being fully embodied and fully in joy and fully in truth and fully in emotion and fully in our humanness because technology will never replace that. And it can never give us, you know, like you were saying, fake fun. Fake fun will never do for your body what real fun will do. And the invitation to create fun in your life which is such a beautiful invitation. Catherine, thank you so much for this. I love that we started with one thing um, and we ended with the solution to that thing. And your your book that I found you through was incredible. I recommend it to everybody. And also your new book, I can't wait to get it. It comes out when? So the, the How to Break Up With Your Phone is out now. And then The Power of Fun, How to Feel Alive Again comes out December 21st. And you can pre-order it now. And I also have a lot more resources available at howtohavefun.com. And I'm going to be running a big, what I call a fun intervention in the new year. So for anyone who's interested, sign up for my newsletter and I'll send you information on all that. So howtohavefun.com is a good place to head. Perfect. We'll put all the links in uh, the show notes. So grateful. Thank you so much for your time, your knowledge, your efforts. Thank you for living out loud and sharing all the things you've learned because I feel like I'm a couple chapters behind and, and I'm really excited about what's to come. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. If this episode resonated with you, one of the best ways to support the show is to go subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any more. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to it, or share the episode with your community on Instagram or whatever social place you like to hang out. This helps get it into more people's ears, and I'm so grateful for your support, always. Thanks again for tuning in. Much love.